Well, good morning again. It's great to see each and every one of you. Thank you for being here. I want to ask a little question of you and have you help me out. Uh, how many of you, just by show of hands, just kind of slip up, were here last Sunday? Last Sunday, you were with us. And you knew coming back this week what the topic was. So I want you to turn to someone around you and go, you should have known better. You should have known better. It's fall break. You had every excuse. You knew the topic. You knew where we were going. And you should have known better. Well, thank you for coming back. That is certainly kind and gracious for you to be back with us this Sunday. And there is certainly a little bit of uh, a trepidation in my heart to know that you knew this coming in and in advance. Last week, we continued our series in an elevated life, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we tackled a lurking dangers of lust and adultery. And the third that was supposed to be included last Sunday was divorce. But due to me speaking too much on lust and adultery and not giving enough time for the third topic, we had to postpone this subject to this week. Uh, if you were at the South Wilson campus last week, they got all three in one Sunday. Jonas apparently is far more effective in time management than I am. But I needed to take it in two Sundays. Because as I got nearer and nearer to the message, I really felt like this subject is just too sensitive to glaze over too quickly. And I want you to know I'm already sensing that additional sensitivity. And I just want you to know that if anyone like me, a preacher, a pastor, a minister, has to speak on something that we widely know has impacted lots and lots of our people, there is an extra sensitivity. But I also want you to know it's not something that I have not personally gone through in my own walk and in my own family. You know, the subject of divorce is something that I actually know probably better than most. And that may seem surprising to you, but let me explain. If you go back two generations in my family to my grandparents, both my maternal, maternal and paternal grandparents were divorced. That was a result of alcoholism, addiction, and abuse. My grandmother divorced as a stage to basically survive being beaten. And my grandfather, on my paternal side, left his marriage because of an infidelity. That's two generations above. My parents, Danny and Debbie, were also divorced. They divorced when I was four. Excuse me, they were married for four years. I was two when they divorced. I lived with my mom for a few years, but for the vast majority of my life, I lived with my father uh, over in Hancock County in Lewisport, Kentucky. And my mom was his wife number one, but there were also five other wives. My dad was married six times. His last marriage was the marriage that ultimately, uh, at the end of his life, uh, that he said it just took him a few tries to get there. He said laughingly over and over. But my mom was number one. That meant I have ex-step siblings and ex-step grandparents and ex-step mothers. That may sound strange to you. It sounds strange for me. 
But because we lived in a small town and we lived in a small community, there would be a marriage with my dad and a stepmom, and that usually resulted in siblings coming to the home and grandparents to be met and to family gatherings with. But then when the marriage would break, now you're my ex-step-sibling or my ex-step-grandparent. And we lived in a small town. We would still see each other. So like at one point, I used to call you my stepbrother. Now you're just my friend who I happen to play on the basketball team with. Does that seem strange? It is. Let me tell you, it is. That's another generation. In the generation that my brother and I, my sister, my brother has been divorced twice. My sister, before she passed away, was divorced and remarried. Uh, Cousins. Jennifer and I's marriage of 20 years is the only 20-year marriage in our family, at least on my side. So I know it up close, and it's not just in my family. I have very close friends, very close friends. My college roommate has gone through a marriage and, or a divorce and remarriage. My, some of my colleagues that I teach with and people I've even served in ministry with in every capacity of ministry leaders, Bible study teachers, missionaries, pastors, and you can go further and further. Some of my dearest friends have gone through these hard, hard days. I have, as a pastor, counseled couples who were in crisis mode. I have seen some of them restored and reconciled, and I have also seen some end and separate. So I know it up close. I have not personally walked through that as a married man myself, but I have seen it in family. I have seen it in ministry. I have seen it in friendships and I have seen it in every capacity. I've seen divorce when it looks like an infidelity and unfaithfulness. I've also seen a divorce when it was just, we don't like each other anymore and we really didn't like each other very much to begin with. I've seen it because of children, because of finances, because of distress. So I come to this topic really with a bird's eye view, a very close view of what it actually is. And I just want to confess to you, I don't know all the stories here at Valley Creek. I never will. I don't know all the stories of your family. I never will. I don't know all the friendships and the relationships you have with friends and co-workers and colleagues. I'll never will. And so I'm just approaching this not as an expert, not as someone in a position of condemnation, certainly not, not even in a position of judgment or pointing a finger. I'm just going to do my very best to allow Jesus to speak to the issue, let Jesus speak to the topic, and then try to encourage a few of you and myself really in the commitments that we have. Because I do not stand as an expert in any way. Actually, I stand as someone who has been impacted by divorce in probably every way. So with that said, we turn to Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And we read verse 27 through 32 last week, and we're going to read it again because in its fuller context is where the issue of divorce is mentioned. And I'm going to ask you to please keep your Bibles handy because while we will start in Matthew 5, we need to go a couple other places in the scripture to get the full picture of what Jesus is trying to say and what Jesus is trying to teach and warn. 
So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. This is where we were last week. You'll remember if you had joined us. The scripture says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye, excuse me, your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is going to speak verse 31 and 32 specifically about the issue of divorce. That's where we're going to focus. But it causes us to ask this question first and foremost. What is this certificate of divorce he's talking about? It's certainly something that he knows in his day, and his time. He certainly knows of it in the manner of which the audience listening on that hillside have lived. Remember, this is a Jewish audience in the first century. It's certainly people that Jesus would be familiar with that would have a good understanding of the Old Testament. They would understand what God had commanded Moses on Sinai, and therefore, they were living out a practice of obedience into the law, the Old Testament law. And so Jesus, in verse 31, says about the Old Testament law, it's also been said, it's also been commanded that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. There was a practice in that day of just granting divorces of a certificate type. In some ways, it was a flippant exercise or a loose exercise. It could be for any reason. It could be for any situation. It was breaking the covenant, breaking the commitment. It was breaking the contract that would bind a husband to wife. And so Jesus wants to recast this in the light of God's kingdom. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is primarily about God's kingdom. It's about living in God's kingdom. And so therefore, Jesus wants to set that in the right context. But it's only one verse. Let me show you where he expounds on this more so. If you still have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. The Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of it, but doesn't really explain all that he intends. Matthew chapter 19, a question comes directly from someone who knows the Old Testament law, who knows the Old Testament commands, who knows the practices of the day, someone that actually is an officiant of the civic laws and of the community, has a question for Jesus in Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Scripture says, and a Pharisee, that's a religious leader, a religious teacher of the law, came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, that is the true question that Jesus is trying to answer. For any cause, for any situation, for any matter, for any circumstance, is it lawful, is it permissible to divorce for any reason? 
because it's not working, because it's not going so great, because there is some conflict, because there's some stress, because there's some questionable activity. Is it permissible? Is it lawful to divorce for any reason whatsoever? That's the question the Pharisee comes with. And it's a testing question to capture Jesus as if he is going to teach something opposite to God's commands. And this is how he answers verse four. Jesus answered him, have you not read that he, God, who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then Jesus returns to the issue of the certificate of divorce. Then they said to him, the Pharisee, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Notice the pronoun her. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Matthew 5, verse 31, Jesus mentions the certificate of divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 19, verse 8, 7 and 8, he speaks to the issue of the certificate of divorce. I need you to turn to one more place if you're able. Are you still with me? Are we with you? Are we all together? Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24. Let's get to the heart of the matter. What is Jesus really speaking to? And I'm, I'm taking us on a little bit of a Bible study journey because if you're not careful, you'll just read the sentence, read the words, and you won't really understand what he's getting at. There is a practice in their day and in their age and in their time of predominantly men, predominantly men, sending away wives for every conceivable reason. They just get tired of them or they just get put out with them or they have some sort of squabble or she's not perfectly obedient to her husband. I mean, this practice of sending away women, putting them out of the home, putting them out of the house is very common. And actually, it's not so unusual even still to this day. In Middle Eastern cultures, Saudi Arabia predominantly, Iran, United Arab Emirates, Yemen, if a Muslim man says divorce three times in the home, that is the stipulation to send the wife away. She doesn't have to really do anything. He just speaks the word divorce three times and there is a Islamic law where they are then cast out of the home and sent on their way. And it's all part of this understanding of something from the Old Testament, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And this is a situational scenario where something happens to a lady that's terrible or tragic. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 through 4. This is what Jesus is actually speaking to in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her 
and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife? Then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that it is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring up Bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Do you see the scenario that Jesus is speaking to about this certificate of divorce? This putting it in her hand, speaking divorce over her. And the reality is in their time and in their day and still to some degree now, a man who puts this on his wife, you're out of here, you're done, you're gone, you're, you're out of our home, out of our house. He puts her in a vulnerable state, in a position of being victimized. In Jesus' day, that usually meant only one of two things. Either she had to be taken on by another husband for her protection and her provision, or she would be sold into slavery or possibly placed into prostitution. So Jesus is capturing a practice that was very, very common in their day to put out women and to make them in the most vulnerable of places. And so Jesus takes this in Matthew chapter 19 and he says, that's not the way it was from the beginning. That's not God's design. That's not God's intention. That was never the position or the purpose of marriage. God had a different plan from the beginning. In many ways, he says, it's because of the hardness of your heart. Men, predominantly, that you have toward women, that you have toward your wives, that Moses allowed you to divorce them, that it wasn't that way. Friends, I could make a commentary on no-fault divorce. I could make a commentary on inconsolable differences. I could make a commentary on we're choosing to dissolve the union. Have you heard some of these terms these days? We are preferring to co-parent but not be united any longer. I mean, we can look at all the civic arrangements, all the legalities, all of the stipulations, all of the rules and regs, but at the beginning, we need to recognize that's not what God originally designed. These are all man-created actions to terminate that which God originally designed. And Jesus said that's just not the way it was from the beginning. He affirmed the original design of marriage. He affirmed the original concept that God had, the original purpose that God had, not to just send away a spouse for any reason, not just to break the union for any reason, not just to end the cohabitation for any reason. When we really look at what God originally designed and what Jesus absolutely confirmed, we'll know that there was a different intention from the very beginning. Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 5 and 6, as he's looking to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, therefore, I tell you, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was the design. If you look at Genesis 2, you know that God is the originator. He created the male and female, Adam and Eve. He brings them together in Genesis chapter 2 in the garden. And God is the officiator of the union. 
God is the one who preaches the first marriage sermon and he says, you shall leave your mother and father and you shall cling to your wife and the two shall become one flesh. I learned it the old fashioned way and forgive me for the preacher adage, you gotta leave, cleave and receive. You gotta leave your home of origin And let me tell you, one of the reasons many marriages struggle is because the couple have really never, ever left the family of origin. They linger in the family of origin. They layer in lots of the problems of the family of origin and they choose not to leave behind that which they were brought up in. Friends, let me tell you, my family, if I drew in from my history, there is no way my wife and I would still be married because our families of origin, my family, particularly generations of family past, dissolved that which God created as quick as they could. You gotta leave the family of origin and you gotta cleave to your spouse. You gotta draw together. That is a picture. We don't use that word anymore. I I guess you use it like a meat cleaver, but that's not what we're talking about. You gotta cleave. That means unite or be woven together. It's the, it's the concept of a three-corded braid that's being braided together, locked in. It's the husband, it's the wife, and it's the Lord cleaving together, drawing together. And the two become one. That's a receiving. It's both physical union, it's emotional union, it's spiritual union, it's financial union. Oh, friends, let me tell you, a couple who have never received each other's financial Backgrounds and financial scenarios, a couple that have continued to keep their money separate because he pays the bills, I pay the bills. I promise you, you're on a path to be uncleaved. You bind in every way. You bind in friendships, you bind in your social gatherings, you bind eventually in your home place where you live. Uh, Probably one of the hardest part about Jennifer and I getting to our point of marriage is when we actually had to learn to sleep in the same bed. I don't want you to raise your hands, but some of you couples know, you know how hard it is to have another person in your bed when you need that movement, you need that space. I sleep next to a space invader. That means two thirds to three fourths of the bed is hers and a little sliver on the side is mine. And for some reason, she still finds her way into my sliver. And I'm like, come on, give me some space here. I'm just like this all night long, just on my little corner, hoping at some point she'll get on her side. I remember the first, I mean, first six months of our marriage, I was nervous to touch her while we're sleeping. Now, 20 years, I'm like, get over there, would you? Come on, push out, give me some space here. Those first years, though, you're just very calm. Oh, I don't want to break her up. I don't want to bother. Oh, no, not now. She wakes up, my back's hurting for what's real. Yeah, I know why. I gave you a swift drop kick right in the middle of the night to get you off my corner. (laughs) She's coming to the 1030 service. Would y'all not tell her any of that part? I would rather that not be shared. (laughs) You know, you share everything. That's the leaving, cleaving and receiving. And that's the two becoming one. But Jesus takes another little step and and give me just your attention here because he says more than what God said in Genesis 2. Jesus adds his commentary in verse 6. 
So therefore, what God has joined together, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God had a role to play. God was the one who brought the couple together. God is the one who joined the union together. God is more, it's more than a judge who pronounces man and wife, or it's more than a cruise ship captain who brings the group together. It's more than a Elvis impersonator in Vegas who signs the marriage certificate. God is the one who draws the couple together, uniting them. And therefore, what God has put together, don't let men or people or things or circumstances separate that which God has created, that which God has brought together. Anything, anything external, internal, that begins to bring a wedge between that which God has brought together should be viewed as something worthy of your attention and doing whatever it takes to push back. Some of our families and some of our couples have a wedge that begins to form and they choose to leave it undealt with And that which God has formed together slowly starts to separate. And the wedge gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually you have two people possibly living in the same home, possibly sharing children and finances, but they're now roommates and no longer husband and wife. So let me end this message. Having taken all that Jesus said and taught, And maybe just try to share a few words of wisdom. These are things that certainly were shared with me, shared with, um, I'm sure, countless couples. But let me just share a few things here. And I just have four, and they'll go quick. Number one, marriage is not 50-50. That's a myth. Marriage is 100-100. I heard it all my life, predominantly from my father who had been through six marriages. It's 50-50. You win some, you lose some. You give and you take. You meet in the middle. You're not always going to get your way, but you're also going to always have to negotiate and compromise. Friends, let me tell you, 50-50 is an absolute farce. The true definition, God-honoring, biblical marriage is not 50-50. It's 100% sacrifice. It's putting others ahead of yourselves in all facets, in all ways, at all times, for the entire duration of your life. And if you're not willing to go to that length, then I would say possibly don't get married. I had a student come to my house. He was thinking about proposing to a young lady that they had been dating for some time. And he came to my house and he was wanting some counsel from Dr. G on marriage. Actually, what he was going to ask me is if he proposed to this young woman, uh, would I do the ceremony, which I did. They did get married. They're still married happily today. But we're sitting on my front porch and he was one of my dear students. His name was Brad and I was like, Dr. G, man, I just need to, I need to ask you, what's the hardest part about marriage? And I didn't really even think. I just kind of answered. Maybe it was already in there somewhere in the tank. I said, well, Brad, it's just being 100% sacrificial to the other person. 
And I saw his face change and he goes, dang it, I was afraid of that. <laughs> as honest as he could be. Because Brad, at 22, was a little selfish, a little self-focused, a little bit about me time. And he wasn't really wanting to give up much of me time. And he really wasn't very interested in giving up me time for her. And when I told him the secret, and actually I don't even think I knew the secret, I just kind of said the secret, it was it's 100% sacrifice, he knew, uh-oh, I'm not sure I want to get on that game plan. Now, ultimately he did. Praise be to God, they're married, two baby girls, beautiful family. But that's the truth, it's not 50-50, and if you have an expectation of winning some, losing some, giving and taking, compromise, negotiating, you will always be losing and you will not be serving and sacrificing. If we really want to look at the model, Christ Jesus is the example who gave up his life for us. And that is the model of marriage. Number two, there are feelings and there is commitment. Can I bring some truth to you? Feelings change. Commitment stands. You know, we have that little puppy love feeling and it comes and it goes. We have this other kind of feeling where we feel all romantic and attracted and we feel all the gushy and the warmth in our cheeks and that can come and go. You can even have times where you're like, oh man, we're best friends and we're best buds and we're just, you know, uh, she's the bee's knees and I'm, you know, I'm her hero and I'm her stud, all the things. But feelings change. Actually, one great Bible teacher said to a group of young married men, you will fall in and out of love with your spouse probably 30 times over the course of your marriage. You will fall in and out of love because love is a feeling, but covenant commitment is what stands. That's the difference. No matter what your feelings are, no matter what your feelings have, hot and cold, good, not so good, no matter if we're all together or times when we're feeling a little bit strained, it's not the feeling that withstands, it's the covenant. Now, Jesus ultimately gives, number three, an out for extramarital relationships and infidelity. But I want to tell you, just because Jesus gives that as an out, it doesn't mean that even marital unfaithfulness is an automatic divorce. I can tell you that there is a trust that's broken there in extramarital relationships. But if the covenant commitment can be upheld sometimes by the grace of God and by the work of the Spirit and by good counseling and good guidance. Sometimes even when the harshest of trust is broken, the covenant can still stand. And that's a work of God. But it's a recognition that feelings can change. But the covenant can stand. Lastly, my last point here. Uh, divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Divorce is not a badge of shame that has to be worn for an entire life. Divorce is not some D on your chest that you have to exclaim to every church and every social gathering and every group, oh, I'm damaged goods. I'm broken and busted. Through the restoration, powerful work of Jesus Christ on the cross, all sin can be forgiven.
All people can be made whole, forgiven, renewed, restored. And that's why I want to share a story about my dad, the man who was married six times. I talk about him from time to time, and I hope you don't get tired of that. My dad would tell you quickly that he was not the best marrying type. He was 0 for 5 and finally got it right on number 6. But through the grace of Jesus Christ, even though all of those first marriages, second, third, fourth, fifth, failed, and some of them miserably, through the grace of Jesus Christ, his last marriage was honoring to the Lord, faithful to the end, and a picture of Christ and his glory. It doesn't think that way. It's number six. It's bad maybe to say it was the last one that finally counted. But I want you to know, wherever you are in the journey, whether you are single and you're considering marriage, whether you're married now, you're covenant is what will stand and if you've gone through the battle of divorce and you've remarried or you've gone through divorce and chosen to stay single it's not something that carries the entire day of your life it's certainly a part of your story and a part of your journey but Christ redeems all of us no matter where we've been or where we're going or what possibly we've been through Christ can redeem our most devastating failures for his glory and and I love this story and I'll close with this at the very end of my life or my father's life the very end of my father's life, he died at age 65. And this was during COVID. He actually had cancer, but COVID prompted his body to begin to fail. And there was nobody else in the hospital room with him except my stepmother, his sixth wife. And she held his hand until he died. His children weren't allowed in. Family weren't allowed in. But she was there with him until the very end. Even though there had been commitments previously, that one is the one that stood to the very, very end. And I'm thankful for her. And I'm thankful for her honoring of their marriage until death did part them. So friends, I want you to know there is redemption in Christ. Let me invite the praise team to join me. We're gonna enter a time of communion and I'm just going to make this a little different, a little different arrangement. Scripture always encourages us as we come to communion, as we think about Jesus, we think about his death, his sacrifice. It reminds us to first examine ourselves and then receive the cup, receive the the bread. And I just want to ask you, if as you're coming this morning, if you're a single person and you want to Just ask the Lord to bless a future relationship, a future marriage possibly, a future commitment. I just want to lay that before the Lord and say, Father, give me the strength, give me the guidance to walk with you in this part of my life. Maybe before you even take the elements, you'll just kneel at the altar and pray that prayer of surrendering that part of your life to the Lord. If you're married for five years, 10 years, 50 years, and as you come to receive communion, you just wanna take your spouse by the hand if they're here. If not, you just wanna come before the Lord and say, Lord, I thank you for the gift of my spouse, the gift of my wife, my husband. And I just wanna ask your strength to help us continue to hold our commitment to the very end. If you've gone through a divorce, a remarriage, a separation, Possibly there's still some hardness of heart. There's possibly still some brokenness that you just need to lay before the Lord. And before you even take the communion elements, if God leads you, just lay those at the altar as a sign of sacrifice, the handing over everything. 
And if you just want to ask the Lord to forgive you for wherever you've been, for whatever has gone on in your life. Oh, there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is peace and there is hope in Jesus Christ who died for all sin. Amen. So I want to ask us to bow our heads and then we're just going to enter a time of communion. And as God leads, however he does lead, I want you to hopefully respond accordingly to him. Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for this moment. I thank you for Jesus who didn't shy away from hard topics or difficult situations, but spoke truth to where people live. Father, I pray for all of us in various ways, in various circumstances. I pray, Lord, that wherever we are today, whatever it comes into the area of marriage, divorce, remarriage, forgiveness, that your spirit would flow in this place and in our hearts for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.